the good thing about a study like this is it kind of opens our eyes so we have the ability to potentially participate in those disruptions rather than let them be thrust upon us. Hello and welcome to another edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast, advancing the equipment manufacturing industry. I'm Dusty Weiss, AEM's professional nerd, Big Ten diehard, and podcast host. And in this episode, the future of agriculture. Several major trends that ag equipment manufacturers will have to deal with to remain relevant. And then we visit with the Dean's Fellow for Digital Agriculture at Purdue University where researchers in the field are pioneering new IoT and drone networks to provide real-time data to farmers about their operations. It's these sorts of -of state-of-the-art insights that we work to bring you here on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Each month, we explore a new subject area to help keep your business on the cutting edge of the equipment manufacturing industry. So if you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the feed so that you're updated every time we put out a new edition. And for the day-to-day news in the industry, also make sure to check out our twice-weekly e-newsletter, The Industry Advisor. Some recent advisor headlines include how IoT is changing the construction landscape, construction material costs jumped 7.4% last year, and Kuhn Group's acquisition of sprayer maker Artec. Check out aem.org news for more on these and other stories. So for decades, the American farm has been the beating heart of our society. But there's a generational shift underway in the way these farms are structured and operated. It's driven not just by demographics, but technology as well. In the second half of our program, we'll hear about Purdue University's efforts to pioneer real-time data solutions for farm operations. But I want to start with some macro trends that are going to change farming as we know it, and what manufacturers can do to position themselves to thrive on those changes. Not long after he came aboard more than a year ago, AEM's VP of Ag Services, Kurt Blades, came up with the idea of putting together a comprehensive report on the future of agriculture. So AEM tapped into the expertise of our partners at the Context Network to launch this research project. Kurt joins us now along with Doug Griffin from the Context Network. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Hey, thank you for having us. I want to explore some of the findings of this report in a moment, but first, nearly 200 people tuned into webinars that we hosted on this topic. Thousands of people read the feature article that we ran at aem.org slash think. Kurt, what prompted you to undertake this project so soon in your tenure at AEM, and why do you think it resonates so strongly with our members? Well, first, uh, looking into the future has always kind of been a passion of mine. Uh, I like to, to, to research technology and to figure out what the strategic impact it's going to have on any particular industry. And I thought it was kind of an, an appropriate first step in, in, in my role here is to kind of create the, uh, the roadmap for which you know, I can appropriately uh, address you know, the issues that are affecting our industry uh, as, as I began this role at, at AEM. Why it resonated? Because I'm not alone. A lot of people like to think about what the future is going to look like. And I think you could say that uh, in agriculture, there's some pretty interesting things. So it resonates with people, certainly those that are involved in the industry, but also those that uh, are just interested in technology because there's some pretty cutting edge things that are happening in the farm space that are dwarfing things that are happening in other industries. And Doug, you were tasked with looking into the future there. When your team at Context first dived into this project, you were looking at a dozen or more trends that would be impacting the farms of the future. How did you narrow the scope of this project, and what did you settle on as the most important trends with which manufacturers have to contend? You know, the first thing we did was initially talk to a lot of people. Uh, We talked to university experts. We talked to industry experts. We had sit-down meetings with the experts at AEM to talk about what these major, you know, macro trends were that would be impacting the future of agriculture. And and there were really two or three that really started boiling to the surface quite easily. And those basically were farm structure change. They were what's going on in the world of technology and artificial intelligence. They were a services-based ag economy of the future. And then the other one that um, we spent some time on as well was sustainability and, and changing farming practices around sustainability. Those were the four primary trends that boiled to the surface and, and ones that we have spent uh, quite a bit of time on um, here over the last year discussing with AEM members and, and hopefully providing some insights to those, to those people. But I think what we, what we determined as we you know, settled in on these four things of how interrelated 
all four of these key findings are. You know, the, you, the, the demographic change is leading to the adoption of technology. The adoption of technology is making consumer traceability and sustainability initiatives practical. And all of this is made possible because there is a, a shift to the service economy in, in society. So they all kind of work together. And I think what we found as we, as we winnowed it down from the, from the bigger list down to these is like, you know, this is, these are the key ones. There's a whole lot of other things that, that, are, that are affecting the world and affecting agriculture. But these are the ones that uh, are certainly the most pressing and the ones that we, we as AEM can have a role in, in helping our members uh, address. Well, let's walk through these then, starting with the demographics one. Anyone who's lived in farm country will tell you how much it's changed over the last generation. The size of the operations, uh, the number of people with ties to farm life, the median age of the farmers themselves. Kurt, as an old farm boy yourself, I don't imagine that you were particularly surprised to hear that these demographics were one of the big trends coming to a head in the next 25 years. Oh, ab- absolutely not. I mean, it's been you know, said for years that, uh, that farmers are getting older, farmers are getting larger. And that's been going on in my career and, and you know, in, in everybody's career before that. That's just sort of been a truism since the Industrial Revolution. But what is particularly interesting, to, you know, with what this research points to is that, yeah, this trend is going to continue. But there's also, um, you know, there's some, there's some nuances that are, that are worth paying attention to. One of those is the ownership of the land itself. And I think that, you know, kind of the, one of the, the aha moments that I found in this one was how little farmland is actually transacted uh, outside of a family. The yeah, there's absolutely, you know, a consolidation of farmers and they, get, and they get bigger and bigger, but the land ownership will remain very similar, at least for the foreseeable future. And I think that's, that's a, a, an interesting fact because there's some demographics that go into that. And I use myself as an example. You know, I'm, my family farm is in Northeast Missouri and Still, very active uh, uh, family family farm operation. Uh, my kids, uh, you know, will at some point inherit. You know, I hope to someday inherit the farm. My my uh, and my kids, I hope, will someday inherit the farm. We've all got a little bit of a connection to the farm, but but certainly, I don't see you know certainly me or maybe even my kids doing any you know transacting of that of that land. But perhaps two generations, three generations from now, that may be a that may be a different situation where we're looking to transact that land. So I think that's a that's a truism that's happened across all of farm countries. That there's a little bit of land that changes hands, but for the most part, the land ownership stays the same. But having said that, farmers are getting bigger and bigger, so they are you know relying more on on renting or or partnerships with with uh, uh, with with landlords. And but those landlords maybe end up being a land trust of family members uh, that are two and three generations removed from the farm. So it's an interesting demographic change that uh, you know, I think uh, this research pointed out in, in an interesting way for the first time that I'd seen it. Doug, your team at Context looked into these demographic trends at length in the course of your research. How does this play into the larger issue of changing farm structure and what will the farm of the future look like and how should equipment manufacturers prepare for that? You know, we really identified two significant trends that will have an impact on the future. The first is, is, is maybe it's not significant, but it's continuation of the current model. And that is that farms will continue to consolidate, farms will continue to get larger, and the model that will enable that growth to take place is through cash rent. So for the, for the foreseeable future, and we're talking about the 10-year um, plus or minus time frame, um, the model that we know today will remain to look much like the model in, in that 10-year time period. However, those farms are going to become very large. They're going to be primarily cash renting their land. And because of their size, um, their buying power um, will increase significantly. And that, that increased buying power will have an impact on how farm equipment manufacturers and how farm equipment dealers call on those customers and how they sell to those customers and how they service those customers. Those are some of the big changes that take place. Now, when you start looking out 25 years um, that's when we'll start seeing some land ownership changes taking place, and that's where, you know, we could see the owner of the land uh, is a is a large um, corporate operation sitting in Chicago, and and the farm operator sits in downstate Illinois operating the land. So now we start having significant shifts in what that customer expects from their suppliers and how the supplier uh, calls on them. So the biggest thing for us was just seeing that for the foreseeable future, the model is going to stay relatively the same. Farms continue to get larger. 
and continue to get more professional and continue to demand more and more and more out of their suppliers. As we work our way down the context report on the future of agriculture then, precision agriculture is another trend that's already having a major impact on the industry. In fact, Doug, 80% of the farm operators surveyed by context are already using yield monitors, GPS, and soil sampling technologies. In your expert opinions, the both of you, what's the most consequential thing happening in that space right now? One of the things that's most interesting, this is sort of a shifting of the uh, of the attention. I mean, for the last 25 years, all of the attention and growth in uh, production ag have come largely from genetics, whether that is improved seed genetics or improved crop protection pro- practices or, or, or modifications in the crop production practices. That's been happening. And we've, we've done a really great job of increasing, you know, the efficiency of farm and increasing yields at the farm level, which translate to nice, potentially more revenue for a, for a farm. That next wave is coming with precision ag. And that's pretty darn exciting when you begin to think about what is the true yield potential for a cornfield or what's the true yield potential for a, for a soybean field. I think, uh, you know, the amount of data, the, uh, the remote sensing, all of the, the precision tools that were frankly not available 20 years ago are available now and, and envisioned into the future. I think we have, we've only begun to scratch the surface on how much yield potential is out there when we truly are managing the field and managing the plant on an individual level. So that's pretty darned exciting and has the potential to absolutely revolutionize the way uh, our business is. It's exciting the amount of new technology that's becoming available almost on a daily basis that allows producers to, to manage their crop, to maximize not just yield, but to maximize ROI. So, you know, in areas of the field where um, perhaps you're better off to use less inputs to improve your ROI versus other areas of a field where you may be able to increase your inputs to improve your ROI. All of those decisions are now becoming um, capable of being made. However, I will say that, that the industry still has work to do to make more clear the ROI on some of these investments so that producers feel more comfortable with with the money they're spending on um, precision ag products is is providing a clear ROI. Um, And if if anything, this perhaps leads into further discussions, but if anything, what the industry must do a better job of is making the ROI of precision ag more clear to the users. I think that really leads us into the next question really well, and that's for all the optimism that's out there on the future of precision agriculture. Doug, your research found a growing frustration on the part of the farm operators with these high-tech solutions. Why are they so frustrated with precision ag, and what do manufacturers need to do about it? You know, the number one thing when I talk to producers on what they want from precision ag is easy. They, They feel today that the options they have are far too complicated, come from far too many different sources, come from uh, create far too many different types of data, and it's just too complicated. Um, What I hear producers saying is they want an easy-to-use digital ag platform that cuts across their entire operation. Um, and, And nobody's there yet. No one is providing that solution today There's a lot of people discussing that solution, but if anything, that is the biggest hurdle that's standing in front of massive adoption of precision ag, and that is it needs to be easy, it needs to be common, and it needs to be across my entire operation. So what does a company need to do then to provide that single platform, whole farm solution, and how are companies going to get there? There are companies out there that know seed really, really well. There's companies out there who know herbicides really, really well. And there's companies out there who know equipment really, really well. Um, the problem is they're not working together today to the degree that customers would like for them to be. And as a result, um, we're seeing startup companies trying to provide solutions. We're seeing large companies providing solutions. But we're not seeing that common solution that customers are wanting. And I, I think, if anything, what the industry needs to be open-minded about is working across lines, across segments that that traditionally they have not. Um, And I think that's what it's going to take to really get customers comfortable 
And whoever figures that out, whoever figures out how to work across the traditional lines that they will really be have the potential to be the winner in this space. And I'll add, of course, you know, as an association, we we're helping to facilitate that you know, on a global basis through our involvement with the uh, Ag Industry Elect- Electronics uh, Foundation, which uh, was very active in, in creating and, and implementing the uh, the ISOBUS standard. And I think what we have found, although it's been widely accepted in, in Europe is, is uh, not been as popular here in the United States. And I think we've had a lot of feedback with our North American members to say that, you know what, there's, there's a little bit of room to do. And they, the good news is I think our, our manufacturers are, are all recognizing that there's, there's some work to do here. And I think even uh, in the last you know, couple, of, couple of months, a uh, couple of years have actually even demonstrated a, a very strong willingness to make some of those, as you, as you point out, Doug, interesting relationships that, that haven't, haven't been there before. Because I think you know, the, the, the analogy that, I, that was, shared with, uh, was shared with me by one of our members was you know, hydraulics were never universally accepted among the end users until all the manufacturers got together and worked out the right connections. Same way with PTO. It's like you, you, there had to be a standard for that technology to take off. And I think when you look back now, boy, those were, those were unfortunate times when everybody had to have a bunch of connectors for their hydraulic hoses. Now that it's all universal, everybody loves it and it's easy and we all get along. And I think we can get there on technology. The difference is there's a whole lot more variables on the technology front. So it's a little bit more complicated of an issue, but it's certainly one that I would, I would hope that all of the associations, uh, AEM representing machinery, as well as some of our friends in the crop protection and seed and even the farmer groups, I think we're, we have a strong desire for us all to work together to find that solution because I think we also all agree that the, uh, the opportunity is, is really great, but it's also a very important problem that needs to be solved for farmers. And ultimately, it's better for the industry as a whole if we're all speaking the same language out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. We're talking with AEM Vice President of Ag Services, Kurt Blades, and Doug Griffin from the <coughs> Contacts Network. In partnership, they worked on this eye-opening report called The Future of Agriculture. You can view that report by clicking the link in the show description. Looking past the near term, the context report lays out some broader impacts that technology will have over the next 25 years. What are those, Doug, and how are they going to change the way that farm equipment looks and operates? Well, you know, I think when you start talking about technology and artificial intelligence, um, it, it really gets exciting about some of what the future may hold for the industry. And today, we've really been operating under a model here for the last many years that if you want to scale an operation, you scale it through larger equipment. You scale it through more horsepower, more width, more rows, you know, being being done at one time. Um, uh, but to be perfectly honest, I believe we're about to see a limit to what we can do. Equipment has become extremely heavy, um, which which is something that farmers must manage when, when you think about soil compaction. Um, moving equipment from farm to farm has become challenging as, as combines and tractors and, and all of the particular implements have become quite large, and that's another complication that farmers must manage. So what they're really looking for in the future is what is technology and what kind of artificial intelligence might open up opportunities for me to, to operate more efficiently. And when you look 10 to 15 years in the future, You've got things like autonomous equipment um, already being talked about heavily within the industry. Maybe not a huge market today, but I think in the future it will be um, as that technology evolves. And, and, and when you take the operator out of the equation, um, it suddenly starts opening up doors to say, well, maybe I would rather have five small tractors versus two big tractors. Um, because you know today you wouldn't you wouldn't do that because you wouldn't want to hire five different operators. But in the future, if you take the operator off the tractor, it starts opening up a lot of possibilities. And then just this whole world of, of data management that, that we've talked about some here today, this possibility of improving the management of your of your farm through some pretty advanced diagnostics and predictive type tools, um, I think are just really exciting for the for the industry. Spent some time with uh, with a number of our members that are in the uh, in the robotic milking business uh, over the last uh, last week, actually. And uh, you know, one of the things that we that is, has been just incredibly interesting to watch the adoption of that particular technology. And everyone knows that's uh, you know connected to farming. The dairy historically is an incredibly labor intensive industry, 
and uh, you know, there's a whole lot of whole lot of small dairy farms where where the family doesn't have a life outside of the dairy farm because they always got to milk the cows, and and as a result, that that led to the uh, to the you know consolidation of dairy and 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 more efficient dairy operations. And I think one thing that's kind of interesting when you see a, you know a innovative technology applied to a, to that particular business. I was speaking with some dairy farmers actually earlier in the week that were finding that they uh, and they were small dairy farmers, 150 cows where they actually could have a viable business and have a career because of robotic milking. It took that variable out of, out of the, uh, that, that labor variable or that, that tie to the farm, uh, 100% tie to the farm variable out of the equation that allowed them to, to actually you know, do this in a, in, a, in a better and a more efficient way uh, that, that, that made a whole lot of sense. And that's just kind of a glimpse of, you know, if you think of that same sort of analogy and you, know, you apply that to, to the production of, of, of row crops or, or to specialty crops or whatever it is, you begin to see where, where those tools, that autonomy, that artificial intelligence, and, to, and, and removing some of those limiting pinch points, which oftentimes are related to human capital, you remove, remove some of those, uh, those pinch points, and, and it does begin to look a whole lot different. And I think uh, to, to Doug's point, maybe it is a, uh, not just, uh, as we say, the, the structure of farmers getting bigger and bigger, but also a, an appropriate place for, for small farmers to participate as well. Yeah, boy, I grew up down the road from some folks who would have loved some robotic milking assistance, I'll tell you <laughs> that. But as we continue moving through this context report, and, and this one kind of builds on the technology aspect of things, but the third big takeaway from that report has to do with the changing definition of service in the equipment industry. Now, service used to mean repairs and maintenance, but Doug, the report notes that as more machines come with onboard computers and IoT sensors, that definition is going to change. How so? So as farms continue to evolve and become larger and become more business savvy, it's also going to change the way that they manage their balance sheets and the way they manage the risk associated with their operations. As they look for alternative ways to manage um, a balance sheet and to manage their, their risk, they're going to be looking for equipment dealers and for equipment manufacturers to provide some creative solutions. Rather than buying perhaps products in a traditional model where you buy the product, you use the product for um, a few years or several years, you trade the product into that model and, and you start all over again. In the meantime, the, the, the dealer provides repairs you know, as needed and some might be under warranty and some may not be under warranty. I think that model really has, um, is susceptible to some pretty big disruptions. It's, it's, we've really been operating under that model for the last 40 or 50 years and customers are going to start saying, well, wait a minute, I don't want to take on all this ownership risk. Um, I would rather just pay for a service. I know exactly what my fee is going to be um, to perform tasks XYZ in the field, um, and I would rather know exactly what my cost is going to be and pay someone to provide that service versus taking on all the variable risk involved with owning equipment. Um, I think that is a, a trend that has a high likelihood of developing over the years. So equipment dealerships and equipment manufacturers need to be prepared to say, how do I get from where I'm at today to an industry in the future that may be all about providing a service. Um, and they really need to start looking at things to start out with of providing just a complete owning and operating cost um, arrangements with customers. And then eventually evolving to a point where, hey, Mr. Customer, you just you, you don't worry about providing, you know, don't worry about owning your equipment. We'll own the equipment and we'll provide a service. And here's a per acre fee to do that. Um, that may seem a little far out to some people, but I don't think it's that unrealistic when you look at what's happening in other industries around the world, not necessarily in agriculture, but these major transformations that are taking place from customers saying, I don't want to own the asset, I just want to pay for a service. And I think that's some, some things that we need to be thinking about as an industry of how will we react to those type of customer demands? You pointed out correctly, it's happening in other industries. The, the interesting thing is, is, is that service economy has evolved in other industries. Oftentimes that innovation, that innovative disruption has come from people outside of the industry. You know, the, the overused example, but so, so apropos, is you know, the largest transportation company in the world is, is Uber. 
and the largest lodging company in the world is, is Airbnb, and neither one of them own an asset. Uh, and, and that's the kind of breakthrough technology that uh, you know, we as an industry, and I think it's our job as an association, to force our members to begin to think about those type of things because the disruption is likely to happen. Uh, whether we're participating or not, I think it's sort of, uh, you know, the good thing about a study like this is it kind of opens our eyes to begin to dream just a little bit about what those disruptions can look like. So we have the ability to potentially participate in those disruptions rather than let them be thrust upon us. And this is actually an area where AEM has taken some leadership this year as well, putting on a workshop for a number of our members on how to best begin positioning their business to take advantage of that. We did that workshop in August at the Board of Directors meeting. Uh, we also had Dr. Timothy Cho on as a guest on the podcast. That was in the June edition, if you want to go back and check that out. But he shared some of those tips there. Um, continuing with this concept of service then, with larger, more industrial-style farms in the future, a savings of cents on the dollar is going to add up to a pretty big pile of money, uh, definitely more than it would on a smaller-scale operation. Doug, with what opportunities then does that present manufacturers? Well, I think the number one opportunity that presents manufacturers is know your customer and know how you add value for that customer. Um, the companies that really understand what the customer will pay for, what the customer sees value in, and, and the, the companies who can deliver on that and stay ahead of the curve will do very well. The companies who aren't perhaps on the cutting edge, those are the ones that become at risk of being replaced by things like selling a product online or by a new different type of equipment from a new player in the market. Um, but I really believe for the ones who, who really see what's coming, see what customers will pay for, um, it spells opportunity to, to do this. And it kind of comes back to that longstanding notion of the trusted advisor um, in farming in a lot of ways. What are the industry challenges that have to be overcome in order for manufacturers to begin positioning themselves strongly as the farmer's trusted advisor? Well, I think the, the, the number one issue facing our industry as manufacturers uh, is talent. And whether that's talent at the manufacturing level, whether that's talent at the engineering level, but in specifically as it relates to this, it's talent at the dealer level. And that trusted advisor that you refer to, just as we, you know, as we talked about before, it's a different set of skills than may be out there today. It's someone that understands agronomy. It's someone that understands, you know, the the way the way the crop actually grows, and then how it interacts with the machine itself. And it's a kind of a different skill set than it, than is out there today. Uh, so I think uh, our biggest challenge as an industry is to make sure that we are building up those workforce relationships, so that we've got those uh, those trusted advisors. And, and in our case, we're going to advocate for the machinery companies and their dealers to be that trusted trusted advisor. I think it's really important that uh, that we address those issues and build those relationships so we can ha be in a better position with educated and talented uh, service folks out in the field. I think the term trusted advisor maybe is overused a little bit in the industry today. I believe what we're really trying to say is, is that there is a very strong need for a human relation not necessarily a computer at this point, but a human relation that adds value to what a customer does. Um, and adding value means that you can come and you can sit down with that producer and you can teach him things and show him things of how he can improve his operation. And for the foreseeable future, computers can't replace that. Um, platforms cannot completely replace that. Now, maybe in 25 years, can they? Perhaps. But 25 years is still a long time away. For the near future, it's very important that we have skilled individuals um, and that we understand how we can sit down and be that, quote, trusted advisor for the customer, no matter, no matter what it is we do for him, that we're doing more than just going out and, and selling him a piece of equipment. Lest there are any equipment manufacturers who feel like they don't have to worry about this sort of disruption, maybe it's worth mentioning a sober reminder of what happens when you don't take innovation seriously. The farm inputs industry is dealing with major disruption right now. Um, what happened there, Doug, and what lessons can manufacturers take away from that? Well, the manufacturers have to learn if you don't evolve, 
and you don't continue to add value, then suddenly price becomes more important. And when someone is not providing value and someone comes along with a lower price or with a direct sales opportunity or an internet sales opportunity, you risk being replaced if you're not adding value. So there's been others in this industry who have experienced that um, here in just the recent recent history of um, being replaced by a product being sold online. Clearly what that is saying is that those customers were basically telling their providers that I would rather buy something online cheaper because I don't put a value in the service that you're providing. So I think that industry is reacting, they're changing, they're, they're making some adjustments as a result of, of, of that very um, clear feedback they got from their customers. And the equipment world has not experienced that, but it's not to say the equipment world can never experience that. So they need to be prepared for it, and they need to be aware of, of what adds value to that relationship with the customer. Were there any takeaways from this research project that really surprised either of you? And I'll, I'll start with you, Kurt. I think the uh, as we look through this whole body of research, I think one of the things that uh, you know sort of out uh, was a bit of a surprise, and I alluded to this earlier, is how interrelated all of these trends are, uh, and that that they they do kind of one one leads to the other. So I think that's that's one of the one of the aha moments. Uh, another sort of aha moment that sort of sort of comes up when you let your let your mind stretch just a little bit is when you begin to look at even where the amount of money that's flowing into our industry from other industries. It begins to 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 use the the phrase from before a little sobering to recognize that you know when Amazon purchased Whole Foods, I mean that that changes the grocery business in a pretty big way. We better believe that's going to change our industry as those producers of, of food in a in a pretty big way as well. And if you look at some of the other dollars that have that have that have poured into you know various startups around the world, it's pretty it's pretty astonishing. But what I think is even more intriguing is when you look at where those dollars are coming from. Uh, you know some of the some of the companies you know if you mention Amazon or if you mention Google or or uh, IKEA is the one I love to throw out there all the time. Is that if you know those are companies that don't have the same steeped in traditions that uh, that many of our members have, and so they're not going to bring those same paradigms. And uh, that's good and that's bad. That's good uh, because it, it, fresh thinking is always great, but boy, it's um, it it does require us to be on our toes and making sure that we're delivering value and delivering exactly what it is our farmers uh, want, because those other companies are pretty good at meeting customers' needs. And they've demonstrated that in other industries. You know, there were there were two big takeaways that I had from from doing this work and from the various people that we've talked with. The first takeaway was that uh, we, as a equipment industry, must become more intertwined with the other suppliers and the other manufacturers, such as crop inputs and you know herbicides and seeds and agronomic services and we must become more in touch with some of our um, peers in this industry to really be successful at solving the customer's needs of the future. That it's going to get more and more difficult to approach that customer independently. So that was my biggest takeaway. My second biggest takeaway, and, and probably one of the most encouraging things, is that the very, very warm reception that we have gotten and the high level of interest we have gotten from so many different people interested in learning more about this, interested in understanding how they can address some of these needs. So I was encouraged that the industry was open-minded um, to listen to some some fairly significant changes that we were predicting. Um, and, and that was my second big takeaway. Well, it is a fascinating topic, and it has been a pleasure discussing this with both of you um, here in the, I don't know, half an hour that we've had here. We can clearly talk about this for hours, and we have, in fact, talked about this for hours in a series of webinars we did over the summer. Those are up on the AEM.org website. I'll give you instructions how to find those in just a second here. But Kurt Blades, AEM's VP of Ag Services, and Doug Griffin, he's the principal at the Context Network. Their partnership over the last year produced the Future of Agriculture report, which has been generating massive buzz in recent months. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining us on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. As I mentioned, if you want to explore these topics in more detail, the webinars are actually up online at AEM.org. There's a link in the show description as well. 
But right now, I want to go a little more in-depth on this topic of digital agriculture technology. The AEM team was at Purdue University just recently, which is a hub for cutting-edge research in this area. And this ain't your dad's ag sciences program, so to speak. They've got teams working on farm field sensor networks, they're pioneering new ways to use drones on the farm, and the most critical work isn't just happening on the farm, it's happening over laptops and coffee, as their data science experts work on those whole farm solutions that Kurt and Doug talked about earlier in the show. During our Thinking Forward event at Purdue, I got the chance to sit down with Dr. Dennis Buckmaster, Dean's Fellow for Digital Agriculture at Purdue, and I opened by asking him about that title. We started to use a different term, uh, really calling it digital ag, and some faculty and staff here at the university also didn't feel like that was really them. So we're really starting to use the phrase digital agriculture and data science. Because when most people hear precision ag, they're thinking row crops, white acre production. But digital agriculture and the data science associated with it includes that, but it also includes all of the logistics and the marketing uh, beyond the farm gate. certainly includes livestock, certainly includes forestry and other uh, rural resources that are beyond corn, soybeans, wheat. So that's a very broad variety of sciences. Um, Are there different programs that are made available to the students that come to Purdue to study that? And and what would you say are the sort of leading programs here at Purdue? So we still have almost every traditional discipline that you would see at any major land-grant or non-grant land-grant institutions, uh, you know, agronomy and agricultural engineering or something that's named about like that, uh, ag economics and animal science. So we still have all of those. Uh, But we're now currently working on, as part of this initiative, uh, either a certificate or a minor or perhaps both that are specific to analytics and digital agriculture. So that would be awareness of sensing uh, sort of the data flow from the device that actually made a measurement to the app that helps me make a better decision. Uh, That whole data flow process would be part of this educational thrust. And from what I understand about Purdue's digital agriculture program, you're not just teaching about these subject matters, you're actually out in the field experimenting with them and pioneering new technologies. What are some of the most critical technologies that you're pioneering right now? It is very much a three-mission effort. So it's education, it's extension and outreach, and it's research and development. One specific project that was recently launched is really not a Purdue project, but Purdue is a major player in this project called the Wabash Heartland Innovation Network. And in that project, uh, we will have uh, very active test beds of Internet of Things for agriculture, both at the farm level and beyond the farm gate. Uh, So that's research and development into the sensors themselves, sort of the communication systems that allow the data to flow, uh, the analytics that make sense of this data that should be flowing, sort of all together and trying to make those things interoperable and really make it valuable. Are you putting the sensors in the fields themselves? Is it on the equipment or where are they? Yes and yes and yes. (laughs) So some of the sensors certainly are going to be in the soil or in the midst of the crop canopy. Some of the sensors are in the grain bin. Some of the sensors are in the airspace around the field to measure the flux of gases coming off of of land. Some of the sensors are in the water streams. So whether it's a a creek, a stream, or a tile, uh, we're gonna instrument those sorts of things. And then, uh, you know, my roots really are an agricultural engineer. So of course, we will also Uh, take advantage of all the data that the machinery that's going across the field is also generating because they're instrumented to the hilt already so that they can do their work in the best way. So we'll try to capture some of that data as well. And so as all this data is pouring in about climate conditions, about humidity and agronomy and, and the like, what are you able to do with these data streams then? And is that... I think at the end of the day, probably the more complex part. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly making these data streams interoperable so that you can actually mine it and learn what it is you want it to learn. That is a key part of it. There's a a term, it's not a new term, but it's new to many of us, and that is metadata, which is really data about the data. It's sort of the backstory or the context 
So to many in agriculture, it's sort of the yield data is the data. That's what I really want. But in order for yield data to really be valuable, you needed to not only know the population of the planting, but the variation in the population. You needed to know uh, the topography of the, of the land. You needed to know not just total rainfall over the season, but exactly when did it happen. So those become the metadata elements. Uh, and to truly optimize these systems, we need to have, frankly, better metadata than our current systems enable. So some of this research and development uh, some of this teaching and outreach that we're doing is targeted toward better context information so that you can use the data in a better way. Speaking of context, uh, the Association of Equipment Manufacturers and one of our member companies, the Context Network, which is a consultancy, we recently authored a report entitled The Future of Agriculture. And they took a step back and, and looked at three big macro trends uh, that are going to be impacting our members. And these three macro trends that they looked at are that uh, farms right now are getting bigger. You're seeing more large-scale operations that operate on an economy of scale and fewer small family farms. They're seeing new technologies, uh, like you're talking about changing equipment. And the third trend is this expectation of the service economy and the end users of this agriculture equipment looking for whole farm digital solutions that paint a picture as far as what their expected investment and return on that investment is if they do X, Y, or Z. You're essentially working in that space, trying to find these whole farm digital solutions. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the update from the front lines in this battle? That's a very good question. It's a big, <laughs> big problem. Uh, this realm, uh, we use the term interoperability, and that captures part of this uh, situation or this problem. Maybe we should look at it really as an opportunity uh, that we're facing right here at the moment. But yes, it is an integration because farmers don't have uh, a corn planter problem or opportunity. They don't have a combine. They don't have a soil fertility problem or opportunity. They really just want to optimize the production of whatever crop it is that they're growing. So that involves soil, machinery, nutrients, uh, weather. And because there isn't any single company, probably a good thing, that there isn't a single company that encompasses all of that, uh, we need systems that work across those lines of business, those companies, we need to be able to integrate the data so that we can really make better sense of it. And that's the big challenge, of course, right now that everybody's dealing with. And, and really, I think it's just a matter at the end of the day of a group of big players getting together and establishing that standard for what that interoperability is going to look like. Yeah, there are uh, standards efforts underway in organizations like AEM and ISO, Ag Gateway and this OADA, the Open Ag Data Alliance. So there are efforts, uh, but we do need to move those efforts faster than we've ever moved before because the problems are outpacing our ability to solve them. What role do you get to play um, with your digital mm -hmm. agriculture program at Purdue University in helping find those solutions? Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the hats that we are trying to play here at Purdue is to bring open source to agriculture, and that's really through our Open Ag Technology and Systems Center that was just established. Uh, of course, there will be proprietary solutions also, but when we need to make data systems, sensor systems, analytics work uh, across companies, it really requires some collaboration that allows that company to consume the data that my equipment might be generating, as an example. And so just like the internet, was built on open source technologies that allowed things to be compatible or without too much effort make them compatible. That's what we need to do in agriculture. So instead of proprietary silos, uh, we need to at least release APIs so we can have data exchange so that I'm not manually handling on my flash drive and in my email countless files. Uh, most of us didn't get involved in agriculture or in farming because we like handling data files on a computer. No, we just want that to be seamless. 
Shifting gears a little bit, unmanned aerial vehicles, <coughs> drones, as they're more commonly referred to, are also playing more and more of a role in digital agriculture, and they play a role in Purdue's uh, program as well. How is that enhancing and advancing this science? Uh, the simple one is simply by using an unmanned vehicle to sort of pre-scout before you actually scout a field can just simply save time. So from a remote view point of view, you can see what spots of the field maybe are all similar and what spots are the anomalies. So that instead of randomly sampling or grid sampling a field, you can more proportionally to what's happening in the field, sample those spaces. Of course, as we start to use hyperspectral imaging, indices of many different types, then we can also uncover exactly what is the situation there on and in the ground um, so that we can address diseases, fertility issues, and that sort of thing. And these are solutions that Purdue is exploring and piloting as well. Yep, yep. So uh, part of our this WIN initiative, the Wabash Heartland Innovation Network, is remote sensing. Really an unmanned vehicle, the images and the, the indices that you generate from those cameras and sensors up in the air, looking down, getting a better feel for what's going on. If your students and researchers working on this drone project through the WIN are uh, anything like the drone enthusiasts that I have in my life, they're effusive in their enthusiasm mm -hmm. for this new technology and they love telling you about it and they love getting out into the field and experimenting with it. Mm -hmm. What is this doing from a broader perspective of interest in agriculture? Because Agriculture is one of the oldest professions in the world. It's been going on since mm -hmm. the dawn of time. But until recently, it's suffered sort of a generational brain drain where mm -hmm. young people didn't necessarily want to go into agriculture. Are you seeing mm -hmm. that change now? It's changing, and it's not only the young people who see, ooh, that is an exciting way to do fun and innovative things. Actually, one of my colleagues, a professor in a different department, was relatively near retirement, and UAVs came around. It has infused him with energy beyond what anyone could have fathomed. So he's now on a very intensive path to get people using unmanned vehicles to better manage their crops. It's like a whole new wave, or it's like a new, a new life to his career. That's really neat to hear. And and now he's just locked in. He's He's got no interest in retirement. He's ready uh, well, to go. Well, at least I don't see it uh, because <laughs> he is active. Uh, this fellow flies his drone as often as he possibly can. If it's a good weather day and it's a summer, it's the growing season, he is out there taking data because not only might it be valuable, it's actually enjoyable and productive use of time. Beyond the sort of established professionals in this space, uh, finding new enthusiasm for it. The students who come in and the young researchers, they're excited too. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's an energizing space. Uh, I teach a senior course. It's not in this space. It's just a senior seminar course. Uh, but I have all the students explain on the first day, what did you do this summer? And those that are most excited have some good stories to tell are the ones who flew drones, did scouting, uh, those sorts of things in their in their real job. That's really cool. We talked before about AEM's The Future of Agriculture report. You get to see and go hands-on with the future of agriculture every day. What's your outlook? What does the future of agriculture look like? The future of agriculture has lots of different dimensions to it. I don't know that this one will turn out to be a major influence, but the whole notion of identity preservation uh, tracking tags, I'll use the term tags instead of claims because I think it's a little more neutral. Uh, but if I grew my crop or my livestock in a certain way, then I could tag it in that way. And there just might be a sort of a custom market looking for that. And digital agriculture is what enables that. So we can take things that generally were commodities and maybe make them a little more tailored. How that plays out in the future, I don't know, but I think it, it's entirely possible. Uh, of course, we talk about uh, increasing efficiency, things that are more autonomous, maybe not exclusively autonomous. Maybe I won't just sit inside and watch my farm completely operate itself, uh, but increasingly 
I'll have to do less what we would thought of as a farming operation and do more of the decision making about what should that operation be and then send a machine, a bot, uh, a UAV out to do certain things. Uh, as I was talking to someone just earlier today, technology really doesn't save us time. It just allows us to do different things with our time. Well, it's a, a fascinating subject matter, and, and we love exploring it with experts like you. Dr. Dennis Buckmaster, Dean's Fellow for Digital Agriculture at Purdue University, thank you so much for joining us today on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. You're very welcome. Dr. Buckmaster was just one of several speakers at our Purdue Thinking Forward event. Robbie Kelman Baxter, the best-selling author of The Membership Economy, was another. And you can tune into next month's podcast to hear my sit-down with her. In the meantime, our final Thinking Forward event of the year is coming up November 6th in Mooresville, North Carolina. It's all about data capture and analysis with Shell Pipeline and Penske Racing. We are going to get a tour of Penske's facilities, and we're going to learn how they're capturing real-time data from cars on the racetrack to maximize performance. It's going to be really cool, really heady stuff. I wouldn't miss that one if I were you. And we're also starting to release details about next year's Thinking Forward lineup. February 21st at Airbus in D.C. and March 12th at the Houston Space Center are two dates that you need to pencil in on your calendar right now. Visit aem.org think to learn more and reserve your spot at one of these events. If you want to go back and catch up on the events you've missed, open up your podcasting app and subscribe to the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. We've got recaps of our sessions at 3M and M-Hub from earlier this year, to name a few. Many other great episodes in the feed as well. Leave a comment or a rating if you're so inclined, because it helps other industry pros find this podcast as well. And that is pretty much going to wrap up this edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. If you're looking for another great way to stay on top of industry trends, follow AEM on LinkedIn. Just search up the Association of Equipment Manufacturers to see the news and events that are relevant to you. If you need to get in touch with me directly, shoot me an email at podcast at aem.org. The AEM Thinking Forward podcast is brought to you by the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Little Glass Men does the music. Top marks, as always, to AEM's membership and education teams for putting together a great event at Purdue. Once again, we'll have more from that event coming up on the next episode of this podcast. But for AEM, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.